when we started your talk, it at least button that uh, I need to have pushed. Conversation. Now, Carl, you don't like my idea. No, I don't like your idea a bit, and, and I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Mike. All right. Conversation. An oral exchange of sentiments, observations, opinions, or ideas. When is either side or the middle going to start talking about jobs? Your point is well taken. On the Michael McConish program, angry is over. And the conversation starts now. What are the Democrats' plans to cut the expenses? That's the big problem. It's a fair question. It's an absolutely fair question. I am not an Obama fan by any stretch of the imagination. Let the man play golf. He does not need the press. I wanted Reagan riding horses. I wanted Bush on his mountain bike. I want them mentally sharp. The floor is yours. And now, here's Michael Smirconish. Hey, everybody. Welcome to POTUS. Yeah, the day has finally arrived. Sorry that it's tax day as well. I'm Michael Smirkanish, and thank you so much for listening to me on day one. This is the theme song, by the way. Get used to it. I can't play it enough. There's a key line that comes up that sums up what I try to do on radio. Terrestrial or satellite. There it is. You know, I've made career moves in the past, radio career moves, but none that are like this one. It's a whole new platform after many years, two decades, 23 years actually on terrestrial radio. And all through the weekend, I was torn about what to say first. You know, it's it's almost like Robert Redford in The Candidate. Do you remember when Redford gets elected and it's the end of that long campaign season and quickly he pulls aside his campaign manager and he says, what do we do now? That's how I feel. The choice is being I could come on the air. I can just deliver a program. I can treat this as business as usual. I had a sign-off program on Friday, but I could pick up where I left off on Thursday. But that seems to almost ignore the, the special nature of this moment. Or I could first try to frame a mission statement, which seems like a natural. I'm just reluctant to make some big speech at the outset because To make a big speech at the outset proposes that everybody who is and will be a listener is, what would I say, taking their seat in some satellite-fueled auditorium and is ready for an address. And that's just not the nature of, of radio, terrestrial or satellite. It's much more transient than that. So what I've decided is a little bit of both. I want to put this in perspective, and then I want to get to work. You know who else has popped into my head in the last couple of days? Admiral James Stockdale. You remember Admiral Stockdale? Most think of Admiral Stockdale because he was Ross Perot's running mate in the 92 election, uh, an election where arguably he cost George Herbert Walker the Bush. That's when Bill Clinton came into power. But Stockdale was a guy with a distinguished war record. He'd been shot down in Vietnam, was a prisoner of war for years, I want to say seven, ultimately was awarded the Medal of Honor. And when he stood up in that vice presidential debate in 1992, he said very famously, who am I and why am I here? Well, channeling Admiral Stockdale, let me answer those questions. I had some terrific political experiences at an early age, a combination of right place, right time, pursuing opportunity, taking advantage of opportunity. Longtime listeners know those stories. New listeners will hear them in time. 
But I ended up being a Bush advance man while I was still in college. And I'm talking George Herbert Walker Bush. I had wonderful experiences traveling the country and doing a couple of international trips as well, planning the logistics of his personal appearances. And that credential, coupled with grassroots political involvement in the Philadelphia suburbs, gave me somewhat of a political profile, enough of a political profile that the network affiliates, the local network affiliates, and the local radio stations started coming to me for election night commentary, despite the fact that I was just in my early 20s. As a matter of fact, a buddy of mine who was himself just filling in on a talk radio station invited me in what was my first radio appearance ever. I was the guest of a guest host. And the station where I began, the station where I cut my teeth, it was an FM talker, which was a rarity, had a big, powerful signal, and it was owned by a husband and wife combination. Uh, Eventually, she would be the one to sign my first paycheck uh, for the grand total of $85.29. But I bring it up because this radio station and this ownership were typical of the era. This was before deregulation. There had been limits on who could own and how many radio stations they could own. And when that ended, the the entrepreneurs, the mom and pops like Chuck and Susan Schwartz, who owned the radio station where I began, they all had their stations gobbled up. So that's where I began in that kind of an environment. And I was initially brought aboard as a guest. And then I was a guest host. They would give me slots like Thanksgiving or New Year's Eve. And then I was afforded my own program uh, first on Sunday nights. And then I moved to Saturday mornings. And then it was Saturday and Sunday mornings. Then it was one hour and afternoon drive. And then it was three hours and afternoon drive. And then it was morning drive. And then it was syndication. And it all looks rather logical. You know, if you map this out and you, you look at the progression, you'd think that there was planning and uh, there was some uh, thought process as to where it would all end up. But, of course, that's not the way that life functions. Ultimately, the program grew to become, according to Talkers Magazine just a week ago, the ninth largest radio audience in the country. And now this. Professionally, the radio program was doing extremely well, and people have been saying to me now for weeks, well, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving 80 terrestrial affiliates and going to POTUS on Sirius XM. And I guess this is where I offer the, uh, the Stockdale response of, why am I here? It's the nature of the platform. The terrestrial platform doesn't suit someone like me. And I think that it's having a terrible impact on the country. And I want to explain that. You know, at this station where I first began 20 years ago, there was a whole cast of characters, just like other talk radio stations across the country. They were all conversationalists, and that's what they had in common. They didn't have ideology in common. One of my fondest memories is of of a host who was a former bartender whose politics were often libertarian, and this was in an era before the rest of us had ever heard of Ron Paul. There was another colleague who was an unabashed liberal, married, as a matter of fact, to the Democratic district attorney uh, who served in that role for many, many years. We had a woman with what I always thought was a sultry voice. Her name was Susan Bray, and she billed herself as the saucy Aussie in recognition of her down-under heritage. There was also a conservative, a conservative who 
I always recognized on air, not for his ideology, but for his great command of the English language. But as I cut my teeth, the guy that I would most often fill in for was a fellow who worked 10 to 1. He'd come on at 10 o'clock at night, he'd sign off at 1 a.m., and his name was Bernie Herman. And Bernie's moniker was that he was the gentleman of broadcasting. Today, that's a brand that wouldn't get you a call back from a program director, but of course, this was a different era. As I say, the hosts didn't share ideology. There were no talking points that everybody felt obligated to repeat. What they had in common was personality. What they also had in common was their ability to conduct a conversation. And then things changed. Then came Rush Limbaugh. What happened is that Limbaugh, against the backdrop of the first Gulf War, had immense success as a syndicated personality. He was then based in Sacramento and had an extraordinary entertainment skill set. I've always acknowledged his ability to communicate and to entertain an audience. And I know why, based on Limbaugh's success and a whole cadre then of of imitators, I know why it worked. It worked because... Pre-internet, this was an age where conservatives rightly felt shut out of the mainstream media. I mean, the media world pre-internet, pre-satellite radio, pre-cable television then consisted of the big network affiliates, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and on a national basis, that was it. And so here came Rush Limbaugh, able to fill a void where conservatives now felt that they could establish their own clubhouse and spend time with one another. And the programming attracted a very passionate base for that reason. And what happened next? The cable uh, television world then took flight, and when Fox News launched, I think the year was 96, they adopted the talk radio playbook with great result. MSNBC also getting its sea legs and floundering for years without an identity. I mean, do you remember the the era when Phil Donahue was an MSNBC personality? Well, they suddenly found their voice when they gave Keith Olbermann a platform, and all of a sudden, with Fox News having staked out the territory on the right, MSNBC having staked out the territory on the left, it was CNN that found itself both lacking an identity and relegated to third position in prime time. And that's the way that things have remained. Ironically, even as technology has increased the number of outlets where people can get information, some, in, uh, some individuals, some Americans, I should say, faced with more choice than ever, nevertheless gravitate toward the like-minded. And I think that that desire to go get your news and your entertainment, and frankly not to distinguish between the two from only a couple of sources, has had dire consequences for the country at large. And I say that because I think that the nation suffers when too many members of Congress are taking their cues from the extreme dial positions instead of the majority of Americans who are clamoring for civility and they are clamoring for compromise. That's what all the polling data says. Gallup has tracked this carefully. More individuals are self-identifying as independents than at any time in the polling history of that organization. More Americans are saying that their particular outlook on the issue is is moderate, not doctrinaire liberal or not doctrinaire conservative. But my God, you would never know that from turning on a conventional talk radio station or one of the cable television news programs. If you landed 
on this planet from Mars and you tuned into a terrestrial talk station or watched some of the cable television news, you would think that the world is completely divided along ideological lines. And yet that's not my experience. And that's not the experience of, of people who engage me in dialogue. And I don't just mean on the air on my own radio program. I mean when I'm leading my real life. I cut up a promo for a POTUS channel and I, I said, uh, if I'm at a back-to-school night, if I'm pumping gas, if I'm doing the grocery shopping, which is a responsibility that I have in, in our house, and people engage me in, in conversation, what do I find? I find that they are usually conservative on fiscal issues, usually more liberal on social issues, and there are a whole host of issues they just haven't figured out. You'd never know they exist by tuning in only to conventional terrestrial talk radio or cable television news. And you say, well, okay, you know, let people go where they want to go for their news and entertainment. Live and let live. I'm all for that. But I think it's having a consequence for the country, and it's because so many politicians are taking their cues from the media personalities to whom I'm referring. Uh, Here's my proof. The National Journal, which I have great respect for, the National Journal for the last 30 years has been tracking the ideological leanings of Congress. What they do is they identify a 100 or so votes and they discern every session what is the conservative position, what is the liberal position. And then they assess how many liberals are there in the Senate, how many liberals are there uh, in the House, uh, how many conservatives are there in the House and Senate at the same time. And what they have documented is that we are at an all-time high for polarization among elected officials. Every Republican in the Senate is more conservative than every Democrat in the Senate. Every Democrat in the Senate is more liberal than every Republican in the Senate. And you say, perhaps, when you hear that, well, Michael, isn't that the way that it's always been? And the answer is no. It hasn't always been like that. If you go to Ronald Reagan's watch and you look at the Senate as it was then comprised, you'll be reminded of the fact that there were then two dozen moderate Republicans in the Senate alone. The Wednesday Lunch Club, they called themselves. Bob Packwood, John Hines, uh, Ted Stevens, Bob Dole, Alan Simpson. I'm doing it from memory, but Nancy Kassebaum. You remember all these individuals? All moderates in the Senate, all Republicans. Today, none left. So what I'm saying is that in the exact same time period where there's been this rise of a polarized media, there has also been a rise of polarized D.C. And I don't believe that it's a coincidence. Uh, I see it as a, a causal relationship. You ask me, you know, why are things so polarized in Washington? There are these glimmers of hope now about guns or glimmers of hope now about immigration. But generally speaking, gridlock prevails in D.C. And if you were to say to me, why is that the case? I would give you four answers. I would say it's gerrymandering or hyperpartisan congressional districts. I would say it's closed primaries that only uh cater to ideologically driven voters i would say it's the role of money we used to reward seniority now we reward fundraising but it's also the polarized media and i don't want to be a part of that so i make one promise to you at the outset and that is i am never going to give you this this is a montage that was played by john stewart and stephen colbert at what they called the rally for america i think it was two years ago on the mall in Washington. As you listen to this, see how many of the voices you can identify. 
Progressivism is a cancer. The Republican Party has gone completely brain dead. The far left does not want the USA to defeat terrorism. The Republicans want you to die quickly if you get sick. The left believes Americans are stupid. Republicans lie. You cannot be a liberal and a Christian. We have a village idiot in this country. It's called fundamentalist Christianity. Islam is a lie from the pit of hell. Atheists are parasites. There is a gay and secular fascism in this country. The Tea Partiers are misguided. I think they're racist. Racism in this country is the exclusive province of the left. Rush Limbaugh, overt racist. Everybody knows liberals hate guns. I think they are clinging to their guns and their religion. Our government is all evil right now. Barack Obama is the worst president in history. Do you think the president's anti-Semitic? I do. This guy is, I believe, a racist. I promise to you to never be a part of any of that on POTUS. That's my one commitment, because gridlock is what you get when Washington takes its cues from those with microphones and not the vast majority who want there to be change, who want things to get done. People need to think about that as they make their news and information choices, and that's why I'm here. I'm Michael Smirkanish, now only on POTUS, and with a brand new telephone number that I've got to memorize, 855-486-1776. You can call me toll-free. In fact, you can do it right now, 855-486-1776. Here's one thing that hasn't changed, and that is, that my good friend, a jeweler, a philanthropist, my good, good friend, Stephen Singer, is still supportive of my program. You're saying, Michael, a jeweler, why are you calling him a philanthropist? Let me just give you a little insight into this guy. Over the span of the last three years, on his own initiative, he created a 9-11 Never Forget pin, sold them for $10 each to members of my audience, and then donated all of the proceeds to the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And because of his efforts, in excess of $300,000 was raised $10 at a time, which is why for any of my jewelry needs and for any of your jewelry needs, Stephen's the man. And you've heard him for sure on Sirius XM elsewhere and for good reason. He always has good products. He always offers tremendous service, including the Gold Dip Roses, available right now for Mother's Day, 24-carat, pure gold it's a rose dipped in gold that lasts forever for 69 bucks thank you steven singer steven can be contacted at 1-888 i hate steven singer or always online at i hate steven singer.com